You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. It's a privilege to be here. I was here two years ago, had a fantastic time, and was thrilled that we could visit again with you this summer. So thank you for your graciousness and your hospitality in having me. I'm going to be preaching today from Psalm 32, so if you have a Bible, it'll also be on the screen. You can get there. But before we get into our sermon, just a quick note on behalf of our church in London to say a huge thank you to all of you. Um, as you probably know, our church was planted about six and a half years ago by Tim Chaddock. And a couple of years ago, as you've just heard, the church went through a transition, not just a lead pastor transition, but it was also happening at the same time as COVID. And so as the transition was happening, we were hopeful in God, but really unsure about what was going to happen. And to look back over the past few years and to be able to stand here before you today and say, God's kindness is such that not just is our church in London surviving, but it's growing and it's been healthy and it's been generative. There's been mission happening through our church. And we know that that's because of God's kindness, but also through his kindness in the generosity of his people. So on behalf of our church, a huge thank you to all of you for your support, your friendship, your financial generosity, all the ways that you give us encouragement and support, you are part of what's happening in London. And so we're really, really thankful. As you think of us over the next couple of years, please be praying for us. A couple specific things I want to ask you to pray for. First, London always in global surveys ranks number one as the loneliest city in the world. So one of our hopes is that we can show our lonely city what real family and community looks like. So please be praying that as a church, we would have a thick and a deep sense of the church's family, the church's community. Second, I've come to see that London is not just a mission field, but it's also a mission force. It's one of the most international cities in the world. It's a place through which you can get to many other places that are in need of Christian ministry and gospel teaching. And our church recently just entered into a kind of partnership with something God is doing in Addis, the capital of Ethiopia. And that's just one example of ways that we're trying to be generous even as we receive so much generosity. So be praying for us that we'd grow in our impact in mission. And then third, I'd ask you to pray for what you might call institutional grace. We're a growing church. We have growing pains. There are all kinds of needs. And we need God to give us wisdom to choose the best option among many good ones that are in front of us for all kinds of things. So be praying that God would protect our church and give us institutional grace as we seek to be faithful and make him known in our city. So thank you. If you have questions or want to learn more about our church in London, I'd love to chat with you after. But for now, Psalm 32. So I'm going to read the text, then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this great passage. This is a Psalm of David, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, as we now turn our attention to this psalm, we pray for you to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to see, to understand, and to apply the powerful truths that are here. Most of all, we pray that you'd help us to encounter Jesus, who's altogether lovely, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 32 was written by a man called David. He was king and a spiritual leader in ancient Israel. And what you need to know about Psalm 32 is that it was written in the wake of the biggest spiritual, moral failure of David's life. This was written after he abused his power, abused and took advantage of someone that he should have protected in his kingdom, and then tried to cover up that evil with murder. This psalm was written in the wake of David's great sin. That word sin is the word the Bible uses to describe our selfishness, our self-absorption, our disordered love, the way we love other things more than we should love God, and all the behavioral problems that come from that. This psalm was written in the wake of David's great sin. And here's what's interesting. The Bible, the biographies of David, First and Second Samuel, say that David was a man after God's own heart, aligned with the values of God. And yet when you read his story, you see, as we see in this psalm, there were some pretty spectacular failures in David's life. So how do we square that? A man after God's own heart, big time mistake, failure, shortcoming, evil, and sin. How do we square those two things? And the answer of the Bible must be that spiritual maturity is not about not sinning, but it's about learning how to respond when you sin. It's about learning what to do when you find yourself covered with guilt and shame. And Psalm 32 says that when David was confronted with the reality of his sin, he confessed to the Lord. And that's what I wanna talk with you about this morning, the spiritual practice of confession. And here's why it matters for you. Some of you today are aware of imperfections in your life, behaviors that you're not proud of, habits that you wanna change. And there are others of you here this morning that kinda like David, you are carrying today spectacular sin. There is something that you're aware of right now that you've done, or maybe something that you should have done but did not do, and you fear that that is going to wreak destruction and havoc in your life. Confession is the tool that God gives us, the spiritual practice 
that's part of the Christian life to help us encounter, address, and find renewal and healing through our small and huge sin and imperfection and failure. So today, I think that in this psalm, we're here not just to encounter some powerful truth, but to experience transformation, to experience a kind of healing that's possible when God's people confess their sin. So I want to show you today three things from Psalm 32. First, why does confession matter? Why is this spiritual practice so important? Second, I want to show you what confession actually is. And then third, what makes confession possible? So why it matters, what it is, and what makes confession possible. Let's take a look. First, why does confession matter? There are at least two reasons. The first is confession is the pathway towards soul wholeness, experiencing wholeness in your life. As I've already mentioned, Psalm 32 was written by David after his great failure. He was king, but he abuses his power, takes advantage of another person, covers it up with only more evil, horrible stuff. And what I want you to see first is as David is aware of all the stuff he's done, it's buried, the text says he kept silent, that is, he hadn't confessed, and that unconfessed sin in his life was wreaking havoc. It was like toxicity or a corrosiveness on his soul. So come with me in Psalm 32 to verses 3 and 4. David says, when I kept silent, that is, before I confessed, notice he says, my bones wasted away. That's physical illness. He's actually carrying pain in his body because of his unconfessed sin. He goes on to say, I was groaning all day long. Groaning, that's emotional duress. That's an inability for the soul to feel at peace or calm. Third, he says, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I have no motivation, no drive. I have no vision for the future. Everything feels like a cloudy blur. And then fourth, he says to God, your hand was heavy on me. That's spiritual darkness. He's saying to God, your presence, which used to be a comfort, now feels like it's crushing me. And so you see in these verses, David says, before I confess my sin, I was experiencing physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. Unconfessed sin was wreaking havoc in his whole life. Charles Blow, who writes for the New York Times, once put it this way, Concealment makes your soul like a swamp. And confession is the way to drain it. And here's the question, why is that true? Why does unconfessed sin wreak havoc? Why does concealing make our souls like a toxic swamp? And the answer is this. God made human beings to be fully seen and fully loved. That's how you were made. That's what you were made for, to be fully seen and at the same time fully loved. That's how you're designed. So you go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the Bible says that in the garden, before sin comes into the world, they are naked and not ashamed. You say, what's that about? Here's what it's about. They were comfortable in their own skin. They had nothing to hide. 
They were fully vulnerable and they felt totally safe. They had nothing to cover. There was no pretending. There was no posturing. There was no putting on the mask. They were fully seen and fully loved. That's how God made us. But then sin comes into the world. Sin, selfishness, self-absorption. They rebelled against God. They said, we're going to do it our own way. And from that moment when they turned their back on God, you know what happened? The Bible says they became aware of their nakedness. So they hid from God, as if God can't win and hide and seek. They hid from God, and the Bible says that they took fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And friends, do you not know, since Eden, human beings have been doing that, trying to find some kind of metaphorical fig leaf to cover our sense of shame and guilt. And today we do that through relationships. We do that to, by trying to make just a little bit more money or getting into the right school so finally our parents will be proud of us or by being really religious and moral and trying to be a really good person or fill in the blank of whatever metaphorical fig leaf we use to cover that sense that we're not okay. Human beings have been doing that since Eden. But in that hiding, in that covering, guilt and shame remain, and they grow and they fester, and they turn your soul into a swamp. And what does God do to meet that? How does God address that? He invites you into the practice of confession, because confession is the refusal to stay hidden. Confession is the opening up, it's the making oneself vulnerable, and that's where healing is found. There's healing in being seen and still being loved. To be able to say to God or to another person, this is me, this is who I am, and to be accepted. That's what God made us for. And that experience of confessing, of being vulnerable, is terrifying, and it's the pathway to healing. Tyler Staten put it this way, do you ever wonder what made David a man after God's own heart? Only this. The Psalms that he authored were peppered with personal confessions, honest, unfiltered, raw nakedness before God. David was a long way from perfection, but he refused to hide. When he realized that he was naked, he didn't pick up fig leaves. He ran to the Father. That's what you were made for, to be seen and loved. And confession is the way we practice that. Now, as I've said, without confession, your soul can't be made whole. Sin is like sickness deep within us. And confession is the way that God has given for his people to experience a kind of healing and renewal as we bring our whole selves before him and say, here we are, and to experience his grace and his kindness coming towards us. So I'll close this point with this image. Thomas Watson, hundreds of years ago, is a pastor who's trying to help his church understand why confession was so important. And he said to them, confession is the vomit of the soul that is terribly unpleasant, and you completely get it, don't you? Sometimes when you're sick, the best thing for you is the worst thing to experience, namely vomit. And Thomas Watson was saying what the Bible says, that in confession we expel the junk that is poisoning our soul.
and we open up our souls to experience God's presence, meeting those parts of our lives in which we feel most naked and ashamed, most covered with guilt, and like we don't belong. Confession is the pathway towards wholeness. But not just is confession a, uh, confession a pathway towards wholeness, Second reason why confession matters, because without it, there's no such thing as real community. Apart from confession, there is no real community. Notice that confession for David in this psalm was personal. He was talking to God, but it wasn't private. Other people were aware. And we know that because Psalm 32 is written down, and we're using it all these thousands of years later. David's confession, yes, it was personal, but it was part of a community in which David recognized that his own sin was impacting other people. James chapter 5 and verse 16 says to the church, confess your faults to one another. Pray for another that you might be healed. There's a real sense in which if we want to be a church family, if we want to be a community of authenticity, the only way for that to happen is by confessing our sin to God and to each other and with each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II, and he wrote a book called Life Together. It's one of the great Christian books about community and being a church. And in that book, he says, look, until we confess, we'll never be a community because we know, you know that you're not perfect. But if you're unwilling to acknowledge that, if you're unwilling to confess your sin, then all we have really is people walking around with a mask on, where everybody's pretending, everybody's saying, yeah, I'm good, I'm fine, everything's great. We're all a little afraid to be our true selves. And Bonhoeffer says, there's no community there. But he says, if you wanna have real community, if you wanna push through the noise and the junk and really be a church family, Confession is the only way for that to happen. He says in his great book, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. You see, sin wants to remain unknown. Sin demands to have a person by themselves. But in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place because you don't have to go on lying to yourself and to your brothers and sisters as if you were without sin. You can take the mask off you can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. What Bonhoeffer is saying simply is this. If this church, if this local church learns how to be a confessing community, if you learn how to confess your sin, not just to God, but to each other, then what you're showing Ventura, ultimately what you're showing the world is that this church is a place where it's okay to not be okay that this is a place where broken people can come and be seen and not judged. They can be seen and fully loved, even as we walk with each other, encourage and exhort each other. It's safe to be a sinner here. Apart from confession, that doesn't happen. Apart from confession, we're all just pretending and we're acting. But through confession, Bonhoeffer says, you take the mask off, you can dare to be a sinner, and you can say, this is where healing begins and renewal happens in our community. Why does confession matter? It's the pathway towards wholeness, and it's the doorway into real community. It matters profoundly. 
So let's now turn our attention to the question and ask, what is it? What is confession? And we're helped here by the Greek word homologia. That's the word for confession used throughout part of the Bible, homologia. And the word homo means same. The word logia from the root word logos, it means word. So literally translated, homologia means to say the same words. And that's what confession is. You see, confession is not just giving God information. Here are the bad things that I did today. I'm telling you about them. That's not confession biblically. Confession is homologia. It's to say about our sin the same things that God says about our sin. It's to see our sin the way God sees it. It's to align our hearts with His. That's what the practice of confession is really all about. It's not be, uh, giving God information, but it's experiencing a kind of change, a deep renewal as we align our hearts to His. So let me show you how this works in Psalm 32. Come with me to verse 5. David is now about to confess, and look at what he says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, just note, three words that are all different in Hebrew that show us David's comprehensive understanding of confession. So look first, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you. Sin in Hebrew, that word means to violate the law. David's saying, my behavior broke your commandments. There was sexual infidelity. There was anger and murder. There was behaviors that broke your law, he says to God. That was my sin, bad behavior. But he goes on and he says, and I did not cover up my iniquity. Iniquity is a deeper word. Iniquity has to do with what you might call disordered love. It's the reasons our heart do the wrong things that they do. It's not just the bad behavior, but it's the motive or the root from which those behaviors spring. When our loves are out of order. And then David goes on finally and says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Transgressions is a word that simply means you've rejected God himself. You've actually said to God, I don't want you and I don't need you. And David understands ultimately that all sin is a rejection of God's presence and holiness in David's life. So do you see what David's done? Confession for David started with acknowledging his bad behavior. And then it moved further to saying, here's why I did it. Here's how my loves were out of order. And ultimately, in all of that, he says, and I see, God, how I've rejected you and your presence and holiness in my life. That's confession. A couple of years ago, I was sitting at my desk at home writing a sermon and my wife came over to ask me for help with something in our, in our home. And I responded to her in a snappy, kind of irritable way. Why did I do that? Well, because I was writing my sermon. You know, man of God, working on the Word of God. But really what was happening was I was not happy about how my sermon writing was going. I was feeling in that moment like, this is not going to be a very good sermon. 
So I responded snappy and irritable to my wife. But it wasn't because of my wife and what she was asking me. It was because as I reflected on what was happening in my heart, my loves were out of order. You see, I thought, I have to write a good sermon. Because if I don't write a good sermon, then people are going to come to church and think, he's not a very good preacher. And if they come to church and think, I'm not a very good preacher, then they're not going to want to come to our church anymore. And if they don't want to come to our church, then we're not going to have a church. And the church is going to go bye-bye, and everything's going to fall apart in my entire life. And what I realized in that moment, why was I snappy and irritable with my wife? Why, why, why did that bad behavior come out? It's because ultimately I was rejecting God and his view of who I was. And I was looking to my sermon to give me an identity that only God was meant to give. And because of that, I was snappy and irritable with my wife. So confession for me was not just going to Michelle and saying, I'm so sorry, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, that was part of it. But it was saying to God, God, I'm looking to preaching to give me an identity that only Jesus can give me. And I confess that. And I don't want to reject your kindness in my life. I want to rest in it. That was confession. Here's another example. Not about me. Enough about me. Some of you today are overworking, maybe dangerously overworking. You can't unplug. You're neglecting your health. You're neglecting family. You're ne neglecting relationships. Maybe even neglecting your spiritual disciplines because you're working too much. What does confession look like for you? Well, partly it might mean changing your schedule. That's repentance, right? Making some changes, maybe doing less work. But if that's all you confess, if that's all the change, that's not deep enough. Confession today is not just saying, yeah, I should stop overworking, but it's to ask the question, why am I overworking? What am I looking to in my inability to unplug that actually God is supposed to give me? Am I overworking for a sense of control or financial security or maybe even people-pleasing? Things that I should be really getting from God himself. And so the way to respond to that sin of overwork is not just by behavior modification and changing schedule, it's to reorder the loves of your heart around who God is and his grace. One final example, just trying to drive this home. Some of you have heard of St. Augustine. He was a leader in the church almost 2,000 years ago. And he wrote a big and important book called The Confessions. The whole book is just a confession to God of his spiritual journey. It's a kind of spiritual autobiography. It's a stunning book. Anyhow, in part of the book, there's a spot where he's reflecting on his life as a teenager. And he remembers one night, he says, me and a gang of naughty ruffians, I guess that's how... They talked back then. A bunch of his friends, teenagers, they remembered one night going out to a neighbor's pear tree and taking pears off the tree. They'd take a bite, throw the pear to the pigs, then go and get another pear, take a bite, throw it to the pigs. They were just stealing pears, taking pears that weren't theirs. So Augustine now, years later, is looking back on that incident of his teenage years, and he's saying, why did I do that? He's saying, look, I wasn't hungry. He says, the pears weren't even that good. So why did I do it? And he says in that book, that theft itself was a nothing. 
And for that reason, I was the more miserable. But he says, had I been alone, I would not have done it. I remember my state of mind to be thus at the time. Alone, I would never have done it. Therefore, my love in the act was to be associated with the gang in whose company I did it. Very beautiful poetic language, but here's what Augustine is saying, peer pressure. The reason I did that was because the love of my friends was more important to me than the love of God. And so my behavior sprang out of a heart that was looking to other people to give me love that I should have been getting from God himself. And that's from which my bad behavior flowed out. Are you beginning to see, friends? Confession is not just saying to God, here's the bad behavior, but it's going deeper. What are the disordered loves that give rise to that behavior in the first place? And how can I turn back to God as the one who gives me a sense of identity and acceptance and love and security ultimately? That's what David's doing in Psalm 32, and that's biblical confession. Here's my behavior, here's the motive, and here's my return to you, God. Do you know how to confess your sin? Do you know how to bring your whole soul to God and to other people and to say, this is who I am, and to experience the renewal that God gives you? Say, I want to, I need to. How is confession possible? Here's the answer today. Confession is possible for two reasons. First, God is just. And second, there's a love from which you can never be separated. If you know those two things, confession will be possible in your life. God is just, and there's a love from which you can never be separated. First, let me say something about what I mean, God is just. Do you notice at the end of verse 5 when David says, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin? It's stunning how simply David states it. He did these horrible things and yet he knows there's forgiveness. How is it that David can be so confident even in the midst of such evil in his soul that God is forgiving? Well, David was tapping into a truth that in the Old Testament was only shadowed. But later in the story of the Bible becomes much more clear. 1 John chapter 1 says this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. Now that's interesting. One pastor says, isn't it interesting that First uh, John says, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin. The passage doesn't say God is merciful and will forgive your sin. It's an issue of his justice. Why? Because of the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying as an example. He wasn't just dying to show us what love looks like. He was dying as a substitute, as a sacrifice. That means he was dying in place of his people. So that on that day when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God the Father was treating Jesus as you deserved. So that on this day, God could treat you as Jesus deserved. Do you know what that means? Your sin is paid for. The bill, the debt, it's covered. 
When Jesus died, he said, it's finished. It's fully, fully covered. And therefore, it would be unjust of God to require the same payment or double payment for your sin. God is just to forgive you because it's already been paid for in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? You see, sometimes I think the way we think about our confession and our sin is we have all this stuff, we know we're not what we should be, and we think, I'm going to go to God, but I hope his mercy doesn't have an expiration date. Like, I hope there's still enough grace and mercy for me. So we come to God and we always think his patience might have run out. He might finally be tired of us. But do you realize that's not even close to how the father's heart is for his children? That he actually says, because of what Jesus did on the cross, your debt is covered and it would be unjust of God. It would be an injustice for him to not forgive the sins of those for whom his son has already paid. That's why the old hymn says, well may the accuser roar of wrongs that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. Because they've been paid for. There is grace and forgiveness and pardon. It is just of God to forgive when you confess because Jesus has already dealt with it. But the other thing you need to know, not just is it an act of God's justice to forgive our sin as we confess, but second, there is a love from which you can never be separated. One of the hardest things about being a pastor, just give you a quick insight, is to watch people in a church not respond well when someone opens up and shares vulnerably about something they're struggling with in their life. It's really hard to watch people be hurt by others inside of a Christian community. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've trusted somebody with something. You've opened up to somebody about something. Or maybe growing up in your family of origin, it wasn't safe to be real and honest about brokenness. At some level, all of us experience a kind of pain that comes from trying to be vulnerable and not being accepted. We're still living in Eden. We're still covering our shame with our own efforts. But if the gospel is true, if Jesus really died on the cross for his people, that means that even when other people fail, and sometimes they do, there is a love from which you can never be separated. And there is a love in which you are totally and completely safe. It's the love of Jesus on the cross. Romans chapter five and verse eight says it this way, God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God's love is revealed to us when we are at our weakest and most vulnerable, that means it's a love from which we can never be separated. It's a love that no matter how ugly our souls get, that love comes stronger and stronger towards us. The Westminster Confession of Faith says there is no sin so great that Christ's grace is not greater still. And some of us have to learn that afresh today. Some of us have been so hurt in relationships and by community, maybe even growing up in churches where God was portrayed as very judgmental and unkind 
that we're afraid to be fully seen and fully loved. But may God help us today to be a church in our relationships, but also as we relate to him that recognizes his love is most profoundly poured out on those who are willing to be broken and vulnerable. Because that's what he did in dying on the cross to show his love. So in just a minute, we're going to come to respond and we're going to come to God's table. When you hold today the bread and the cup in your hand, you have this tangible, practical reminder that your sin is so ugly, God had to die for it in Jesus. And yet at the same time, you were so loved, he was glad to do it. So the cross at the same time humbles us to the ground and it lifts us to the sky. And if you know that, if you see that, if you see Jesus and his love dying for you, you become a person who can confess. You become a person who can say to God and even to another person, here's my sin, here's my selfishness, here's my stuff, and I know I'm safe in Jesus, and I know he's gonna meet me in renewing grace. So let's pray for that now as we come to this time of response and confess and encounter our God's grace. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for meeting us today through Psalm 32. And as we come now to our time of response, we pray for such a, such a clear view of Jesus. We pray that you would help us with the eyes of faith to see Jesus on the cross dying for us, raised to life for our renewal so that we can become a confessing community so that we can become a church, that we can become a people who are able to be honest and real and vulnerable and experience wholeness and deep family. So right now in this time of response, protect us from fear. Protect us from that impulse to cover our guilt and shame ourselves. Help us to refuse to hide. Help us to confess our sin. And more than that, to confess our Savior's love in whom we seek renewal. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen. amen. We come now to our time of response. And I believe that in this time of response, God wants to heal. God wants to bring renewal. And the doorway and the path into that is confession. For us today, that's going to mean confessing our sin before God and maybe even confessing our sin to another person. And so as we respond today, we have the elements of the Lord's Supper up front. If and as you're ready, if you're trusting in Jesus and part of a church that loves the gospel, this table is for you to refresh and to renew you as you're nourished in the love and the grace of Jesus. So come forward and receive when you're ready. We also have leaders in the church who are on the aisles to pray with and to pray for you. Maybe there's something you do want to confess. Maybe you want someone else to bring you into the presence of God in prayer. The leaders of the prayer team are here to pray for you. And finally, we have the carpets up front. Sometimes it's helpful to kneel in a posture of surrender that mirrors a heart that says to God, I confess. Maybe even the act of standing up and coming forward is a kind of refusal to hide and opening up yourself in the front of others to say, God, this is where I'm at. This is who I am, and I need your grace. So this is the time to respond, to confess our sin, and to confess Christ's grace. Let's do that now as we respond together.